the, uh, the next uh, statement that is made in paragraph one, but what I would like to do is read uh, the paragraph once again so we have the full context of what we're dealing with, and uh, then I will show you where we are going to be. So if you have a copy of the confession, uh, please uh, feel free to follow along. We'll be in chapter two and paragraph one. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. I think that is one of the greatest summary statements of, uh, of God that I've ever read. And um, so we're taking our time through it. So um, if you recall last week, if you were here, if you weren't with Donnie, um, just kidding, brother. We looked at the, uh, the first sentence of our paragraph um, that has identified the subject of who uh, our subject is, the Lord our God. And we simply looked at that statement, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. That was our focus last week. We considered the name of God as a summary of all that he is as God and looked at his personal identification, if you recall, to Moses in Exodus chapter 4. I am who I am. And then he said, I am. And then he said, the Lord. So the next three statements that we're going to deal with in this paragraph all relate to the nature, the character, and the essence of God, the great I am that we identified last week. So it's important that we first deal with uh, some of the language that we have in these statements, and then we'll address the theological implications because some of it is uh, a bit... Um, a bit weighty in terms of language. A more modern rendering would be helpful. If you're, if you're looking at the paragraph, we're starting after that first uh, semicolon uh, where it reads, whose subsistence is. So another rendering of that is, he is self-existent and infinite in his being and his perfections. None but he can comprehend or understand his essence. He is pure spirit, invisible, and without body parts or the changeable feelings of men. So what we're going to focus on this evening is the self-existence of God. And also uh, we will look at the, um, uh, the infinity of God. The, um, and we'll, we'll address what exactly we mean by that when we get there. So uh, first, let's consider the self-existence of God. Uh, that is, his subsistence is in and of himself, is the language that the 1689 Confession uses. 
Now, other ways we can describe this, and by the way, you'll need to have your Bibles handy. We're going to um, do a run through Scripture uh, tonight in several places. Uh, other explanations or titles are given to this specific doctrine, the self-existence of God. Other ways you may have heard it referred to is the independence of God or um, the aseity of God. The uh, ase is Latin. It means the from himselfness, the from himselfness of God. God does not need us. God uh, does uh, not need the rest of creation for anything at all. Uh, yet we and the rest of creation are given the opportunity to glorify God and to be uh, enjoying God, to bring him joy and satisfaction and to bring us joy and satisfaction. So we're going to look at it in those two parts. First is this reality that God does not need us or the rest of creation um, at all. He doesn't need us. And yet he has created us in a certain way that we are able to glorify him. He is able to um, enjoy what he has created in us. And in return, we are able to enjoy him. So... The self-existence of God related to this reality that God is not dependent upon us or anything in all of creation. Let's look first at Job chapter 41 and verse 11. Job 41 and verse 11. If someone wants to read that, we're going to run quickly through these. So if some of them you don't flip to... Um, just listen up because we're going to try and get through a lot of scripture. Job 41.11. Someone please read that for us. Okay, thank you. Um, we see this uh, same sentiment addressed in Romans chapter 11 um, when the Apostle Paul says, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever. Amen. So we get this idea that um, in, in God's asking this rhetorical question, who's given me something that I now owe him something in return? Answer, nobody. Of course. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. There's a great, um, a great quote from a Dutch theologian. He says, not one single microbe in all of existence does not the Lord Jesus Christ have sovereignty over and cry out, mine. It is all his, um, and he has created it all and sustains it all. There's a great, uh, in essence of this, um, one, of the, one of the notable theolo theological principles that um, uh, Jonathan Edwards really nailed home a lot in his works was this reality that um, this chair is a chair um, because Christ has decreed that the particles that make it up should um, maintain the essence of the chair as chair. That if Christ turned away for one second, that this and everything that holds it up would just cease to exist. It would no longer be what it is. That's, that's quite an amazing reality if you think about that. That what we're made up of and all everything that we have is made up of is, is this matter that's held together by God and his sovereign decree. Um, so it just goes to show all the more 
um, how small and insignificant we really are as you think of it in that way. So God has no need outside himself. The Bible speaks clearly to this attribute on several occasions. One we just saw in Job, and you can see a laundry list of statements that Job make, uh, that God makes to Job um, in relation to this. The one I want to spend a little more time on is in chapter uh, 17 of the book of Acts. So if you look there, Acts chapter 17, we're going to read verses 24 through 28. The Apostle Paul is in uh, Athens, and he is in the area called the Areopagus, and he's addressing all of the uh, philosophers of the day. They would, they would gather and they would give their great rhetorical uh, speeches so everyone would be impressed with what they had to say. And as he's walking, he sees all of these statues, um, all of these um, idols around him. One of them is an altar, and there's an inscription on the altar. It says, uh, to the unknown God. And so Paul, being very perceptive and wise and winsome, he says... Um, that I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is. And he uses this as a launching point uh, for the gospel. So here's what we read in Acts 17, beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. So someone give us a summary statement here of what Paul is telling uh, the Athenians. What has he said to them about God? Okay, excellent. Very good. Nothing is that uh, is outside of God. Nothing exists outside of God's having created it. And the reverse uh, of what of here is he's saying that as a result of that, um, what do we do in order to, um, to offer anything to God that is of use to him? Nothing. <laughs> we don't have anything that is of, uh, of great worth that God wishes he had or uh, that God needs uh, because we are God's creation. Um, so um, he is not, uh, this great statement where he says he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I think Paul covers it uh, right there. God does not need anything we offer. Um, so again, as we, as we said uh, previously, uh, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything at all. But I want you to keep in mind as we say that, God has created us, though, in a way uh, that gives value to our lives and what we do. Uh, but we can't 
divide the doctrine and say uh, that this is how God's created us and therefore life is meaningless or we can't say that God, um, and we'll address one way that people say this, but God is so concerned about us that um, he really does in the end need us. Um, that's not true either. So we'll, we'll deal with those um, together and not try to separate them out. Look also at Psalm 50. Psalm 50, if someone can read for us, verses 8 through 15. Thank you. So uh, someone tell us, what is God saying to his people here? Excellent. Fantastic. That's exactly what he's saying. God has no need from us. Every need that God has is fulfilled within God himself. Great. We see this in several places in the scripture. Let's look at one more. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a lengthy passage. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40. And we will begin in verse 8. And read to the end of the chapter. If someone can read that for us. Isaiah 40, verse 8 through 31. Amen. Thank you very much. So we see here the prophet Isaiah proclaiming the word of the Lord. And in this, we see this relationship between God and his creation uh, like no other relationship. Isaiah compares the sovereignty, the, uh, e- the eternity, the infathomability, the nature, uh, the understanding of God. He compares all of this that is contained within God to the weaknesses of man, uh, to the weaknesses of creation. Uh, we see that in that very first verse we read in verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he goes on to talk about all of these great attributes of God, um, that even, uh, even all, of the, all of the beasts of the field and an entire nation um, on fire, that the, the, uh, the aroma of the incense of the sacrifice would not be enough to, uh, to please God or to honor God because he is so infinite and so beyond um, uh, what they are able to offer. So, Again, here we see uh, the, um, the self-existence of God, this reality that God is the creator of all of these things. He, he, even, he even marks out the fact that, that heaven is measured out by God himself. That heaven isn't self-existent, but God himself created heaven and all of the rest of creation. He measures mountains in scales and it goes on and on about uh, these things of nature that we would look at and say this is just tremendous. It's an amazing uh, work of God. Well, he says, I hold these on the tip of my finger, and it really is nothing to me. Um, so it's, a, it's an incredible description of, um, of God and his work. Now, as the self-existent God, he is not only independent in himself, but also causes everything, and I just mentioned this before, causes everything to be dependent upon him. So God is independent in himself, but everything he's created, he created in a way that it depends upon him. Remember the chair. 
It doesn't exist without God creating it to depend upon him for his existence. Same with you and I, of course. So no one would argue that a dependent God would need would have need outside of himself. So to say otherwise is completely contrary to this reality of dependence. So if I said that God, um, uh, God was dependent upon, or, or God came from creation, uh, that we created God in some way, or God um, was um, the result of, uh, of a birth, or something along those lines, uh, we wouldn't deny the reality that he's dependent upon something. In other words, if the world created God, he would need the world because the world was his creator. Does that make sense? Uh, It's like saying a child has need of his mother because he came from his mother and he would not have existed otherwise. So you and I are here because we had a mother and a father. Um, So if God was dependent then he would have need uh, for something to have created and brought him about and sustained him and all of those things. But because God is independent, he has no need for anything outside of himself. But what's amazing about the God of the Bible is that he was entirely self-existent, and yet he chose to create and enter into a previously non-existing world for what reason? that he would establish relationships of covenant, of freedom, and of love with his creation for his own glory. It's an amazing reality. So God's pronouncement to Moses when he said, and we looked at last week, I am who I am, carries with it this assurance that God was not dependent upon creation. I am. In other words, I I don't need any of this. It sets him in clear contrast. Think of the context there. Where's, where's Moses living and dwelling at the time when he encountered God in Exodus 4? Where, where was he? What's that? Well, where, uh, let me say it this way. Where are the people of God and what are they enduring? They're in Egypt, right? They're in the bondage and slavery. So... God is setting himself in clear contrast to the gods of Egypt, the pantheon, what they would call it. God is who he is, and there is no other. He is non-existent upon any other. Whereas all of the gods of Egypt were created, uh, they, were, um, they have all these lengthy stories about how they came about and what they did and why they were dependent upon the other gods, God is setting himself in clear contrast. So the Egyptians are depending on statues and idols that were created uh, as images to do something. But God's people were assured that he was, we looked at that last week, God is, uh, that he is sovereign, Uh, that he was with them, and that they could depend upon him because he depended upon no one. We're assured that nothing will keep him from being there for us. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's there. He exists. He is a rock-solid foundation. Now, related to this are the words of Jesus in... John chapter 5 and verse 26. 
And here Jesus talks about having life in himself as the Father has life in himself. And um, this may be a bit of a confusing statement that Jesus makes, but it's really not when you think of it in terms of what we're talking about in the self-existence of God. This is John five twenty-six. Someone please read that verse for us. Okay, great. So... Jesus is very clearly saying, I am God. Because what he is saying is, um, Jesus is attributing to himself this very attribute of God of self-existence. He's not dependent upon creation like the Father. He's just like the Father in this. There is nothing in creation that he is dependent upon. All of life is contained within him. I have life in myself as the Father has life in himself. So in one sense, when we talk about God's life, we are really only using a human language to talk about something um, that our minds aren't able to completely comprehend. To say God is um, self-existent is not something we're fully able to comprehend because um, the second we think we could name uh, everything or work through everything that we uh, we assume uh, God was able to uh, uh, be within himself, we would fall far short of um, the full breadth of that. Um, and, and it's not entirely accurate, but Jesus is, he, he's using human language so we can understand it, but life somewhat implies the possibility of death. Well, God will never die. Life also implies a beginning, but um, the life of God uh, has existed in eternity past. Uh, so it's accurate to say that God is life. God is the giver of life. God is the creator of life. And in this, uh, Jesus uses this language that we can comprehend this very concept, that God is life and the giver of life. He has always been and is in existence, has no need outside of himself. He is self-existent. So this reality puts to death this faulty notion that God created man for companionship as if he were lonely or needy. You might hear this often. I think it's a well-intentioned statement that people make seeking to identify the personal nature of God in relationship uh, to his people. But such a notion is a denial of this idea of the self-existence of God. This is one of God's vital attributes, that God is God and is dependent upon no one. So... For God to have made man in order that he would have a companion or he would have fellowship uh, would imply that God's purpose in the world has whom as the central figure? Man, me, you, right? That would would make us the central figure of God. That would make us the great affection uh, of of God um, outside of uh, himself. God's greatest affections are for whom? Himself. Right. God's greatest love is for himself. And so for, uh, for God to have created us because he was longing for companionship or fellowship is denying this reality that God had no need outside of himself. We are not central to God's plan. God himself is central to his own plan, his own glory. God's greatest concern is not man, but himself. Uh, a, a quote here from 
from Wayne Grudem. He says, if this were true, it would certainly mean that God is not completely independent of creation. It would mean that God would need to create persons in order to be completely happy or completely fulfilled in his personal existence. And what this also does, again, unknowingly, I think, it's well-intentioned when people say these things, but it denies the sufficiency of the Trinitarian nature of God. That God himself, in and of himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, provides all the essential needs of companionship and fellowship and all of those things. Our idea of what relationships are supposed to be comes from the Trinitarian love that God shares for himself. And so to say God created us so that he would have companions or have fellowship, we're all going to, you know, if it all worked out that Adam and Eve and God would hang out in the garden and everyone would be happy, um, just that, that's why God created them. We're denying the fact that God was, he was perfectly fulfilled in that need for relationship uh, within the Trinity before any of creation existed. And we'll deal with that more as we get uh, to uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in paragraph 3 of chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me. So the self-existence of God is entirely unique. It's not just that God does not need creation for anything. God could not need creation for anything. Again, a, a quote would be helpful. The difference between the creature and the creator is an immensely vast difference. For God exists in a fundamentally different order of being. It's not just that we exist and God has always existed. It is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle. More than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop. More than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. I think that's a great statement and very helpful for us to to even conceptualize the, uh, the vast gulf between us and God in terms of need. Now, I'll ask you this question and we'll talk about it. Uh, What does the self-existence of God imply with respect to man and the rest of creation? Are we meaningless? see a lot of heads shaking no, but why? Does not the self-existence of God in and of itself, should that not imply that we are meaningless? If God doesn't need us, if he's not dependent upon us, if he didn't create us for communion and, and fellowship uh, because he was lonely or he wanted friends, um, then how, how is it that there is any meaning uh, derived from our lives? What do you have to say? Jeannie? Say again. Okay, good. So uh, in terms of our purpose in life, uh, that we would glorify God. So it does come back to this reality of his existence, right? Why he's created us so that we would glorify him, right? So that is, uh, that is our purpose. That is our meaning. Good. What else? Amen. Our worth is derived from the very God who created us and existed as himself. He made us with that purpose. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I think that's appropriate as long as we um, as long as we look at it in light of our um, our subservience to God. I guess is the right word that uh, God wants us, but not in the sense that He has this great um, this great longing that can't be filled or you know something like that. Uh, his want is to be glorified, so it comes back to Himself. Otherwise, what do we make God? subservient to us so he becomes an idolater right right yeah he's not lacking it's simply for his uh, for his glory and his enjoyment it's not wrong to talk about us being existing for god's enjoyment not because he lacked anything but because he wanted to for his uh, glory as we've talked about so this is, this reality of our meaning in life is one of the things that makes this doctrine of God's self-existence so remarkable. Is that he has created mankind, he's created all of the rest of creation as well with a specific meaning or purpose. Uh, he could have, think of it this way, God could have willfully and justifiably created us as dispensable pawns in this cosmic game of chess, and he chose to do otherwise, right? He could have made us to be whatever he wanted us to be and could have, you know, tortured us for all eternity. And he would be perfectly just in doing that if he so desired as the creator. But he didn't. God willfully created his creation in a way that it is meaningful to him. As was previously stated, God created us in such a way that we and the rest of creation can glorify God and bring Him joy. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. The words of God as He speaks to His children. He says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. And so God states the very purpose for why he has made us for his own glory. So two important things implied here in God's self-existence in relationship to mankind. First, God did not have to create us at all because he was completely content without us and existed in eternity past, will exist in eternity future, completely independent of any need for us. I hope that's clear. We've, uh, we've stated that in several different ways. Secondly, God chose to create us in the way he created us as fully dependent upon his desire to do as he pleases for his own purposes. So the self-existence of God sets him apart far and wide from his creation in the sense that he is God and we are quite obviously not. And yet God has created us to live in a world that he has made in which we can enjoy true union and communion with him. That's the beautiful reality of this. That God could have chosen to do otherwise in creating us, but he chose to do so in a way that we are able to relate to him in a very personal manner and be loved by him to love him and to enjoy all of the attributes that he possesses and displays. 
Any uh, questions or thoughts? I know there's a lot of theological language there that may be a bit confusing, but as we talk about this doctrine of self-existence, any additional thoughts or questions before we move on to the infinity of God? Yeah, that God is all-glorious. We're not adding to God's glory. We're simply displaying the glory that God already has. So uh, best illustration I can think of, maybe help you. Um, If you take a, if I had a diamond big enough to hold in my hand, uh, I would be a very wealthy man. Uh, But besides that, (laughs) uh, if uh, if it was refined and cut in thousands of different ways, um, and I held it up in the sun, what would happen with the light that hit that diamond? It would refract in all of these different directions, right? Am I adding light to the sun? No, I'm simply refracting that light in every direction. So when we talk about glorifying God, that's, that's in essence what we're talking about. We are refracting, we are displaying the glory of God Um, We are reflecting that back onto him to show him that we understand his value and his worth. We're not adding to him. There's nothing to be added to him. We We can't give him anything as though he can be repaid. We're simply displaying God's worth in what we do for his glory. I hope that makes sense. It's the best way I know how to describe it. (laughs) Any other thoughts or questions? All right, we'll move on to the next. I don't, uh, I hope we have time. Um, In this same statement, uh, the confession reads, He is infinite in being and perfection. So here we're talking about the infinity of God. He is infinite in being and perfection. Um, So we can say God is absolutely perfect in every way and is free from any and all limitations because God is not and cannot be limited. Now, um, I will leave this out, but there's a a great um, statement from Louis Burkhoff. He's a a Dutch theologian where he goes on to explain this in more detail. But um, the general general idea is that, um, that God is outside of time and space, uh, that God is outside of um, the the created order in the sense that he doesn't have to be involved in creation, but he has made himself to be. Um, there are no limitations placed upon him that he did not place upon himself. Um, and those limitations he's placed upon himself are the fact that he has defined his own nature and character. So I know this this gets a little convoluted because we're thinking... Okay, well, uh, my nature is what it is, right? I can't change my nature. Well, God's nature is the nature that he has wanted it to be. He made his, he, he, not made, but uh, his nature is as he has decreed it. Yes, sir. Mm, I wouldn't use the language that he made himself. Yeah, but I know what you're saying. Um well, God is, if God is infinite in perfection, that nothing he does is sinful by the very nature that he is doing it. Does that make sense? That if God does something, it is not sinful because God is doing it. 
because God is the one who gets to decree what is and is not sinful. Does that make sense? Okay. I know this is, for some of you, this may be like way off in the weeds, but um, hopefully as we try to pull all of this together in, in these, uh, these weeks that we're, we're starting to get a, my hope in all of this, we're getting a really big view of God here that we're starting to see as we wade through all of this how big uh, and, and um, truly wonderful God is. So um, God's infinity and freedom from limitation is identified in the famous first lines of the Bible. In the beginning, God. So the infinity of God reminds us that he always was. He was before time and space. Um, and although uh, even at times to call it time is not even accurate, uh, we, we talk about God's existence in relationship to time because that's all we know to, to do, right? I don't know anything outside of time and space. I don't know how to think in that realm. Um, but that's all God's given us to be able to relate to. So when we talk about God's existence, when we, sing, when we think eternity past, most of us are thinking just this long, dark tunnel that always goes on, and it's going on into the future. I personally don't have a hard time thinking of eternity future, that we always will exist and God always will exist because it's ahead of us. But thinking eternity past, before creation, before anything existed, God existed. Uh, let me say it this way to just kind of... Um, before any uh, micron of existence existed, God always existed. Before any particle ever came to be, God existed and created it to be so. Chew on that. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. God, God did. So... No heaven, no hell, no earth, no space, no angels, no demons, no matter, just God. That's, uh, that's quite a mind-blowing reality. Um, it wasn't for a day or for a year, but the Bible tells us from everlasting. He was alone, he was self-contained, he was self-sufficient, he was self-satisfied, all of those things we just discussed. So, in a sense, this is an extension of the self-existence of God, and yet it speaks so much uh, more directly to his eternality, or um, it's so so often described as his uh, immutability. Immutability is the theological term that's often used. Um, So, God is who he is, and he does not change. That's what we read in Malachi 3, 6. Always has been, he is from everlasting, and will always be, and always has been, to everlasting. James 1, 17 gives us uh, that picture. So God is immutable in his essence. In other words, his nature and his being are infinite. His attributes... Whatever God was prior to creation's existence is what he is now. It doesn't change. And his counsel, so his will, never varies. What God determines as his will is his will for eternity. Always has been, always will be. Um, Herman Bavinck, a Dutch theologian, he writes this, The doctrine of God's immutability is the highest significance for religion. A bold statement. 
The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. Okay? It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest where? In God. In Him alone. For only He is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Now, you know, I've I've thought a a lot about this um, the last couple of days. And as I, I don't, every time I read that and think about that, it just kind of sends chills down my spine to think about that. That we can call God the rock, our foundation, our hope, our satisfaction, our joy. Why? Because while we are becoming, while we We're created and becoming and moving forward that God always has been. He is sturdy. He is immovable. He is unchangeable. And so I can stand upon him, in essence, and he will not sway in any way, shape, or form. Um, So why he said in that quote that uh, this is of highest significance for us, is because this is where we find, whether you know the language or not, this is where we find our hope. This is where we find our ability to trust in the everlasting love and goodness and um, uh, justice and all of the attributes of God wrapped into this, in His immutability, His infinity. It's essential for maintaining the proper balance between us as creatures and Him as Creator, And it rightly informs our worship. In other words, who we worship and how we worship Him. Now think of it this way. If God was ever-changing, which, again, would be His prerogative if He chose to do so, but He hasn't, He would be unable to provide us with any meaningful revelation, right? The Bibles we have would essentially be meaningless if God was changing. Why? What's that? Yeah. Every time God changed his mind or did something different, we would need new revelation, right? Well, scratch that. I'm moving on to this. Um, Think of what else would that mean for us? Well, (laughs) that's true. We do that enough on our own. But God in his essence, if he was ever changing, I would never have any foundation of hope, right? I would never have any assurance that when God says... I'm working all things together for your good um, until tomorrow because tomorrow I'm changing my mind and doing something different. So, or um, you are saved by the, uh, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Um, but uh, next week I'm going to change my mind and you're going to be uh, found guilty or innocent based upon your own works. Um, so this is a very significant doctrine for our foundation. Yes. Sure, that's good. This is, this is always something that comes up in any conversation about the immutability of God. Well, we pray. Why would we even pray if uh, you know, God has already determined the beginning from the end and all of these things? Um, or 
we can't say God's ever changing because he changes his mind. We see, um, you know, he, he relented after, um, you know, he was, um, he was appealed to in, uh, in destroying people groups. He, um, he says that he regretted certain things, all of this. Well, how do we need to read those things? We read those things in the Bible in relation to his interaction with creation. We have to remember God in his infinity is outside of time and space. So God sees the end from the beginning and he knows how he plans it all out and works it all out and brings about the ends that he has determined. Um, So our praying is not to change the mind of God. Our praying is not to change the will of God. Our praying is that God will conform us more and more into what he has already determined to help us see what he has determined, to, um, to move us towards seeing those things fulfilled that we would trust him and believe him all the more. And we can go down that road. So he commands prayer, yes. It doesn't change his mind, then why pray? It's not for God. <laughs> it's for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, good. Well, again, we have to understand it all in relationship to the um, uh, the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God. Um, did God know Jonah was going to pray? <laughs> uh, did did uh, excuse me? The uh, Ninevites were going to uh, cry out in repentance. Did God know Abraham was going to appeal to him? Uh, this is this is where um, this is where people trip and fall into heresy very easily. Um, for instance, Abraham brought his son Isaac um, to the altar to sacrifice him. And God stops him. And what does he say to him? Okay. For now I know that you believe me. Now I know that you have faith, right? Well, did God not know that Abraham had faith? He knew that, right? Um, well, some have used this one passage. Grant, now, if you base an entire theology on one verse of Scripture, you need to really be careful. Um, but there is a theology called open theism, and it's this idea that the future hasn't happened yet, so God can't possibly know it. It hasn't been done. So what we see going on there is that Abraham was obedient to God and going to sacrifice Isaac. God stopped him and said, now I know that you're faithful. I didn't know before, but now I do. Um, that's, that's heretical. Um, we are denying the true nature of God, the character of God, in that he saw that and he worked it out according to his plan. So once again, all of these things, the relenting of God and all of this is related to um, his eternal decree for our observance and for our working within that. Well, sure, and for the good of the Israelites to trust all, yeah, for the good of us even, you know, even today to see that. Yeah. Uh, Dad. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Sure. What's the go ahead. Moses, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um what's significant even about that passage though in Jonah, um, 
is Jonah's not like they're making this great appeal to them as to why they should repent, right? <laughs> he he hates these people, and he wants to see them destroyed. We see that happen at the end of Jonah, right? That he's desiring that. He's sitting on the mountain seeking to see them be annihilated. Um, so even though God has said, if they don't repent, I will destroy them, he gives them opportunity to repent. But if we understand, again, as Russ is saying, we need to understand all of Scripture and how it works together. How does God save them? By his sovereign decree that they would be uh, those who would repent. And so it is, it is a work of God in that. They're changing their hearts is by God's design. Sure. And repentance comes by his act of <laughs> granting them new hearts that they would repent and turn to him. So it all is of God. So uh, we're out of time. Let me end with this. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Good cap on everything we've discussed tonight. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So God's word is true. God's word is reliable. It is trustworthy in every way. We can trust God because God is who he says he is and always will be. So I'd encourage you, if you think more about this this week, read Psalm 102. Spend some time reading and reflecting on Psalm 102, especially verses 25 through 27. Um, to get a better understanding of what the Scriptures point us to in terms of the self-existence and the infinity of God. Any other uh, final comments or, or questions before we pray? Josh?